Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 16th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. A couple of weeks ago, we did a, an interesting show with an American professor of philosophy, Scott Hershowitz, um, about children and philosophy, the simplicity, I guess, of philosophy and how children were able to grasp it. The book is called Nasty, Brutish and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Um, the book in some ways reminds me of the work of the great um, uh, Austrian uh, art historian E.H. Uh, e. Gombrich. Before he died, he uh, published a book called uh, A Little History of the World. Um, and at least according to its entry in Wikipedia, the book was written uh, to make sense of the complicated world for an intelligent child. Of course, many children, perhaps all children are intelligent, in some ways perhaps more intelligent uh, than, uh, than, than adults. Uh, many of you, of course, will be familiar also with Gombrich's classic, The Story of Art, which is, I think, still one of the best-selling histories of art. Uh, the idea of a little history has really taken off Yale University Press has a whole series, a little history of literature, economics, poetry, art, United States, archaeology, and of course, inevitably enough, a little history of art. It's a challenging little history given Gombrich's tradition, but I'm thrilled that uh, we are joined by the author uh, of A Little History of Art, Charlotte Mullins, who is a distinguished art historian in her own uh, writes and Charlotte is joining us from Lewisham in southeast London, the heart of the art world. Uh, Charlotte, a little history of art. Am I vulgarizing? Is it designed for children or just for perhaps slightly uh, more simple adults than the typical adults who read academic books on art? Oh, I think it's for anyone. I mean, I would say it's for maybe 14 plus, but a curious 11 year old could read it. The great thing about the Little History series is that they are designed to have no jargon. So there are no footnotes, there's no big language. Um, anything that's needs to be, um, you know, a slightly fancy word is described. So anyone with curiosity and zero knowledge of art can read it um, and enjoy it, I hope. And art, of course, uh, again, Charlotte, I don't need to tell you this. Art is something that we look at. It's designed for some central visual pleasure. But I'm guessing that many people in the art world, professional critics, perhaps even artists, think that modern art, postmodern art, is a little too complicated, a little over-conceptualized. Is that fair? Well, I think there's always been challenging artists all the way along since, uh, you know, art, art was first uh, put on the walls in prehistoric caves. Maybe not all of it was easy to understand. Um, but art, I think the best art challenges us. And I don't think we should shy away from it being perhaps difficult when we first look at it. But that said, if you just love paintings, there are galleries full of paintings. You don't have to be looking at Marcel Duchamp's uh, presentation of a urinal 100 years ago and making everyone think it's sculpture. You, you know, there's, there's art for everyone out there, I think. 
What's so unusual about Gombrich's story of art? Why is it considered such a classic? And, and, and what's your opinion of the book? I mean, what what a legend. I mean, that book sold over 8 million copies. Um, and Gombrich was certainly, he came to Britain um, in the 1930s as a refugee from the war um, or from the Nazis and um, wrote that in 1950 and became Britain's most loved and biggest art historian of the 20th century. The problem is it is it was written in the 19 in 1950. So Gombrich is an amazing storyteller. He wrote many books. He makes art come alive and he makes it accessible to everyone. The problem was he streamlined what art was. So although he calls it the story of art, there's 50 percent of um, the population not included. So in the whole book, it's maybe 700 pages long. There's one woman artist. And he was famous for saying, well, there weren't any great women artists. Now, of course, since the feminists of the 1970s we know there were hundreds of brilliant women artists throughout history so uh it's almost like he oversimplified the story to make it easier to tell and you know you just can't do that so um while i have immense respect for his ability to tell stories and to bring art to life it definitely feels like time to um, update the story of art to bring in artists of colour, to bring in women artists, to bring in artists from beyond um, the West and to really show how exciting but complicated but exciting art can be. Gombrich, of course, was a man on the left. So your description of his interpretation of art was still sort of white male centric. Um, yeah. I would assume that if he was around today, he would have changed his mind, do you think? Oh, I think we're all um, people of our time, aren't we? Um, I think, you know, it's to write the book without any women artists in there, one, one, one woman artist, it was Kathy Colwitz, a printmaker from Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. To write it without any women artists in uh, seems a big oversight, even back in 1950. I mean, there were... Uh, let's think Barbara Hepworth was a sculptor at that time. Or, you know, if we go back in time, Artemisa Gentileschi was well known. So it's not like these artists weren't visible. Um, so it was a choice. Yes, I'm sure anyone writing today would accept that that was a huge oversight uh, that needed correcting. The The issue is that that story of art is still, as you said, is, you know, is still on the bookshelves in galleries and museums. It's never gone out of print. Um, and it, it, you know, it is one of the, the highest selling books on art. I think I'd quite like to see it with a sticker on the front, a kind of disclaimer saying, you know, there is really well written, but there are no women artists in this book. Would that be an advertisement or a warning? <laughs> um, I think it would just, you know, um, I think when you don't see something is missing, you just take it as the norm. So Bonnie Greer, playwright and British playwright, play, playwright and critic said um, famously kind of history is the story of those who wrote it and also if you're not visible in history you feel not part of it so in Gombrich's book if women artists aren't presented as great artists then people aren't going to see them as great artists but of course they are there uh, and I'm pleased to say there's more than 100 women artists in my book alongside all your favourites from Michelangelo to Van Dyke to Van Gogh all the male artists too. All, well, I'm not sure if they're my favourites, but all our <laughs> favourites. Um, was Gombrich also, and, 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 and obviously this is not a conversation about Gombrich's book, but your book is clearly the next volume in a sense, and give, given the Little History series. Uh, did, um, 
Gombrich clearly did a disservice to female artists in his story of art. What what about when it came to um, African-American artists, for example? We did a show at the weekend with Glenda Gilmore, who has a new book out about Ramar uh, uh, Bearden, one of uh, the great uh, 20th century African-American artists. Uh, did, um, did Gombrich uh, leave out most artists of color as well? He did. Um, yeah, Ramar Bearden is in my book, is not in Gombrich's story of art. Um, and neither is Jacob Lawrence or Elizabeth Catlett. You know, there, um, it really was a streamlining of, um, of art that were the artists that he was interested in. I mean, the, if you look at the history of um, or art history's legacy, it's quite a new discipline, maybe 250, 300 years old since it started to be taught in universities and, and seen as a discipline in its own right. And the, um, the overriding um, people writing about art at the beginning were white men. And they were very much uh, looked at the art of Greece and Rome as the quintessential art of copying, of mimesis, of uh, realism. And then after that, the late Renaissance, when artists came and um, got as close to Greek and Roman art as perhaps was possible. And these art historians afterwards, and Gombrich was one of them, would follow that tradition. And that tradition did exclude many women artists. Interestingly, the Renaissance um, artist Vasari, who wrote one of the first biographies of art, did include 13 women. So it, it isn't something that um, these women were never written about. They were written about in their lifetime. But after that, subsequently, as art history, Western art history has grown as a discipline, for some reason, they were excluded. Um, and only now is that being that history being recovered. And, you know, I'm not trying to include people, uh, artists who aren't worthy of being up there with, say, Michelangelo. The artists, the women artists I've included worked for the kings and queens of uh, Spain or England. They worked for emperors and sultans. They influenced male artists at the time. They received the same state burials as male artists. They were allowed into the academy, even though on the whole they were male places um, to congregate, but they were allowed special privileges. So these artists, these women artists kind of succeeded in a male world against the odds. But then when they died, they were just written out. And as you said, the same for African-American artists. These artists, you know, Jacob Lawrence created an amazing series called the Migration Series in 1940. It was a response to the Great Migration. Six million African-Americans, of course, moved from the southern states to the north looking for work. And the paintings he created are powerful and almost horrendous to look at when you see. They're, they're, they're quite um, simply painted. They're very accessible. He captioned everyone. And when you look at them, it tells the story of this migration. Uh, the, the work was collected by the Museum of Modern Art and the Phillips Collection in Washington. So it wasn't like museums weren't collecting this work. They knew it was a great series, but it just wasn't included in these in these books on the, the general history of art. And, you know, it was that white male art historians were looking at white male artists, whether consciously or unconsciously, it was a bias. It's a really interesting and controversial subject. Uh, Charlotte is, again, you know this much better than I do. You've written extensively on it and you've, the, the book in a sense, I guess, A Little History of Art is a, is, is a little polemical. Um, to what extent should we be careful about putting the gender or the ethnicity or indeed even the religion of the artist 
before the art. You talked about self-representation and man. One, of course, always thinks of Rembrandt, for example, and his self-representation considered one of the great masterpieces of Western art, maybe Western male art. We did a show recently with Jennifer Higgy on female self-representation in art. I'm sure you're familiar with her book, The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits. I asked Jennifer whether women represented themselves differently from men. She kind of danced around the question. Are you going to dance around that question? Um, I think we no, none of us exist in a vacuum. We all come with our emotional baggage. We all come with our history where we sit in the world. Um, I don't want to dance around the question, but if you're Rembrandt painting a self-portrait or your Sophonisba Anguissola painting a self-portrait, you are yeah, going and to she was on uh, she, she she didn't show up in uh, in um in Gombrich's book, but she shows up in your book as well as in uh, Jennifer Higgins's book. Absolutely. I mean, she was a phenomenal artist. So her 16th um, century Italian Renaissance artist. That's right. So her father was very ambitious for her and she was very ambitious too. And she sent her drawings to Michelangelo when she was a teenager. Um, some people think he taught her. Um, he said he certainly corresponded. The, those drawings were um, influenced Caravaggio in a, a very direct copy in his Boy Bitten by a Lizard is a direct copy of one of her drawings. And when she was in her 90s, still painting, Van Dyck visited her in Palermo where she was living and drew her portrait and uh, and conversed with her. So, you know, these artists are really significant. She did huge amounts of self-portraits just like Rembrandt. But as you said, they're, you know, they're not well known. Um, and, you know, Rembrandt used just like she did, used his portrait as currency. So if you paint yourself uh, and then people, prospective clients for portraits can see the self-portrait and can see you, they can see how good you are and they can see how you can create an identity that perhaps, you know, makes you, certainly in Rembrandt's case, makes you look like a king or uh, someone having a great time or someone who's, you know, a philosopher. You know, Rembrandt was the master of that in a way, but Anguissola's work, we just don't know in the same in the same way. Yeah, your your book might be called A Little History of Art, but it's a broad little history, a big <laughs> global little history. Um, just as Gombrich focused on Western artists, you bring in a lot of the non-Western tradition, Ai Weiwei, the uh, great uh, contemporary Chinese artist, Shirin Neshat, uh, a very distinguished Iranian visual artist. How global is the book? Um, it range. I mean, the the final chapter is global. The art world now, contemporary art, is global. The internet has seen to that, um, and actually, that was quite a hard chapter to navigate because I've written quite a lot about contemporary art over the years and know a lot of artists, uh, and you don't want to leave out people. But equally, you know, I felt like a really dominant trend at the moment is the power of art. That. Um, the final chapter is called Art as Resistance, um, and Ai Weiwei is in that chapter. He, of course, lives in exile in Europe because his art is so critical of the Chinese government that at, at one point he was put in, um, arrested and put in solitary 
uh, confinement for three months just because of the questions he was asking about a 2008 earthquake in which 5,000 children in China uh, died. And he made a piece of art directly related to that. But um, so, you know, you can see artists go a long way for their for their um for their work and unfortunately for him that means he cannot live in his country neither Sharan Nashat she lives in America but is Iranian um but the rest of the book definitely you know I would think most chapters if not all chapters go beyond the west there is the a central core that that uh, looks at the renaissance it was such an important time in history influenced 400 years of um of art after that subsequent in europe and now still influences artists worldwide so i felt it was important not to deviate too far from that um kind of central story but i also wanted to bring in a lot more art from um beyond Europe beyond the West and also present it alongside those Western artists that you know about. Put it in con in context. Quite a few books on art history will have a chapter on Chinese art or a chapter on African art. And I wanted to put it back in with all the rest of the art in a chronological story. So hopefully it's easier to follow. But also you can see how exciting it is if you look at Nox sculpture from Africa, which is 2000 years old. You can look at it alongside Greek and Roman sculpture. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's really fascinating to see these works made of terracotta um, and probably used in funeral um, in funerals. Then a lot of them are broken. So we think they must have been destroyed purposefully in funerals. But so exciting to see it, particularly as there's no written culture left of the knock. So the art is the culture, is the, is the kind of writing that they've left behind. I have to make this joke, Charlotte. I can't resist. That's uh, Charlotte Mullins' knock on the Western art tradition. Uh, she talks about uh, knock sculpture. Uh, it's a response in many ways. Her book, A uh, Little History of Art, not such a little history of art. It's a big little history, a response to Gombrich's male Western-centric version of the story of art. I, I want to take a short break now, Charlotte, and then after the break, I want to come back and talk specifically about one or two pieces of works of art that are featured in the in the book perhaps have a more conventional conversation about art rather than just focusing on uh, who the artist is. So we're going to take a, a short break and then we'll be back with Charlotte Mullins, the author of A Little History of Art. Don't go away, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same. Um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub 
live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Charlotte Mullins, the author of A Little History of Art. I hope most of you are actually watching this rather than listening because we're going to have some some visual fun in the second half of the show. Uh, Charlotte is the author of A Little History of Art, and it's a, it's a lovely little book um, with some beautiful illustrations. I was thrilled, uh, Charlotte, that um, my favorite work of art, uh, A Woman in Blue, Vermeer's work from 1663, shows up in this book. Uh, it's the kind of work of art that would have shown up, I, I guess, in Gombrich's story of art, too. How did it get a relatively prominent position in your book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I didn't want to, I, you called the book a um, kind of polemical. I didn't want to really write a polemical book. I just wanted no, to and write. I, I, I think that's probably unfair. I apologize. It, it's, it's just, well, it's a different kind of book, shall we say. It is. And it, I would hope it's an update. But Definitely all those um, European artists that you know and you know people know and love, like Vermeer um, or Pieter de Hooch, another uh, Golden Age artist, or Gerard de Poche, um, they all feature in the book because the Dutch Golden Age was such an important time. And I wanted to show that art wasn't just bought by um, kings and queens or emperors and sultans. It was bought by merchants in, in Holland in the in the 17th century. Millions of works of art were sold to the middle classes, to people who'd made their money um, importing goods from China and um, other places. And, and they made their money through trade. And they decorated their homes. They, they hung works of art. They often commissioned works of art for their home. And what when you look at a Vermeer, you know they're not that big. Um, he was a notoriously slow painter. But also they were to be displayed in real homes. So they're not the, you know, the whopping great 10 meter wide Veronese or or the Sistine Chapel, you know, they're small, modest, contemplative works that look up, that, that that feature real people. And that Vermeer, I'm I'm not surprised it's one of your favourites. It's absolutely beautiful work, um, and I wanted to include it because I think uh, it's interesting to think about whether or not Vermeer used a camera obscura, which was mm. a scientific way to project before cameras were invented of course but you could project using a lens an image in reverse onto a darkened room and work out your composition that way and there's kind of growing evidence to suggest Vermeer did this um, and even the way he paints I mean if you look at that painting the chair is slightly out of focus but the woman really captures your attention it's just it's just a perfectly balanced beautiful painting the light falling on her face yeah, absolutely great work. But it is a male representation of a female and lots of interpretations are about the woman might have been pregnant. She was reading yes. a letter from her lover. Perhaps the letter was suggesting that he wasn't very keen on her anymore. So there okay. is, there, there is a, 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 if not a sexual, certainly a, a gendered element to that work, isn't there? Absolutely. But you see, she's got her clothes on. You'll know, One thing you might notice in my book is that there are very few women, female nudes mentioned. And that is very much in contradistinction from other art historians who have 
put a lot of naked women in the in their books. Um, I, they they do appear in in places, but I uh, so do naked men. So I wanted there to be a, a more of a balance, and I wanted the women in the book to be active as much as possible. Um, obviously, this is a woman painted by a man. So she becomes a kind of object in Vermeer's hand. But in a way, she's still active herself. She's standing there reading. She's got a space of her own. Um, she is pregnant or appears to be pregnant. I think be, I think knowing what's in that letter is impossible to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I but think... But it's impossible also not to speculate. I mean, that's I, of course, the beauty of, of the art is it requires yeah. you to speculate. If it didn't, then it wouldn't be successful. Yeah, all great art makes us speculate. I mean, you know, one of the most loved paintings, Grant Wood's American Gothic, um, you know, we have no idea in that painting if the it's a father and daughter or a father and wife. We don't know why he's got a pitchfork to defend his Gothic style house. And it's the questions the painting asks that I think makes it still so exciting for us today. Interesting. And the same with the Vermeer. You also feature not just male um Dutch artist, but also female. Rachel Reich, uh, her vase with paintings is featured in the in the book 1700. Were the Dutch the first to create a perhaps a sufficiently egalitarian world to make female art, um, female commercial female artists viable? It was definitely easier for women artists in Holland in the in the in the Netherlands in the 17th century. They were able to train with male artists in the in the studio, which in Italy was impossible. In Italy, you had to either have a private tutor at home, or maybe like Artemisa Gentileschi, your father was an artist, and therefore you kind of got in the back door of the studio, as it were. Definitely in uh, the Netherlands, you could go and study with male. Um, artist as a woman it was a it was considered respectable enough for you to do that and Rachel Royce as your example showed was just a superb painter of flowers were, she, she, were some of these female Dutch painters were they as technically proficient as Vermeer or Rembrandt Oh, I would say with her, she's she's more. Now I'm in dangerous territory here. I would say she's more proficient as an artist, maybe than even Vermeer. I mean, the detail is superb. She was doing something very different. She was painting still lifes, and that's all she did. You know, she painted flowers, and of course, she wasn't painting real flowers. She was painting using flower books. Um, there's a great example of a book from 1680 um, by a woman um, illustrator that she may well have used. Um, Rachel Roach may well have used. And you know, I think these paintings they 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 put all the different flowers in to really look at you know they they, they were commenting on the brevity of life. We all know cut flowers don't last very long, um, and of course there's that added nuance in um, Dutch art of tulip mania. So where where tulips appear, hmm. uh, we know that at, at a certain time in in the Netherlands in the 17th century, a single tulip bulb could sell for the price of a house. You know, it was one of the first uh, There's a appropriate uh, appropriate subject, perhaps in an age of of cryptocurrency. What about the business of art? Do you touch on that? We had a really interesting show a couple of weeks ago with art historian Charles Delheim. Uh, he has a new book out, "Belonging and Betrayal: How Jews Made the Art World Modern." His argument, I think, is that Jews were sufficiently separate from the mainstream culture to 
uh, both operate and appreciate uh, modern art. Do you talk much about the business of art? Is it significant in a history of art or is it just something that needs to be read about and discussed in other books? Oh, it's it's hugely significant. I mean, I want, I suppose the golden age is a is a prime example of that to show how the money that um, the 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 Dutch um, obtained from trade was then used to buy art. You know, art was a commodity, just like it was for the the wealthy, you know, the kings and queens of of the world. Um, where I would what I've tried to do is contextualize each artist. So where it's relevant, where the business. Um, of art is relevant. I've certainly included it, but it's not dominant in the book. You're talking to me from England. The, the British don't have quite, I think, as illustrious a history of art as, as some other countries. Although, again, oh. that may, well, that may be debatable. And, and that was my introduction to uh, a couple of uh, uh, illustrations in your book of, of, of William Hogarth, uh, Beer Street and Gin Lane, 18, 1751, sort of polemical introductions to, to London life and perhaps the challenges of modernity. Um, tell me a little bit about Hogarth, why you included these prints in your book. Again, I wanted to include, well, Hogarth's a great British export for one, isn't he? Um, and those are fantastic prints. I wanted to include him because um, a lot of people think all artists went to academies and they all studied in the same way from the classical nude. Hogarth actually was from a, a relatively poor family. And a lot of um, artists who didn't come from wealthy backgrounds studied initially with engravers. So although we might know him uh, famously for his conversation pieces like The Rake's Progress or Marriage Ellen Mod, it was this way of making prints that is how he first made his money and the what I loved about these prints Gin Lane and, um, and Beer Street is that they along with Henry Fielding the British novelist they actually the pair of them had the gin laws changed in the UK so in fact the Netherlands were to blame for the uh, the gin epidemic in London around this time 1750s it had first been imported 60 years earlier and uh, it was you know, gin abuse was rife by this point. So Gin Lane, the first one, we can see a woman, her, her baby falls out of her arms to its death because she's so sozzled. A man is skeletal, um, a singer, and he's still got his gin glass in his hand. There are people dying all over the place. Only the pawnbroker is doing well. And Hogarth made it as a mirror print to Beer uh, Street, which you can see on the left, where only the pawnbroker is doing badly. Everyone else is having a jolly, saucy, patriotic time, swigging giant tankards of beer uh, and working hard and being industrious. So the idea, of course, is to show that, you know, gin need to, gin <laughs> sales needed to be, uh, to be curtailed. Britain, of course, quote unquote, colonised the world. They created the global world that we live in today. Your little history of art is a global history reflects our new global sensitivities. It comes out of colonialism and the history of colonialism. You do have one uh, interesting illustration of Benjamin West's death of General Wolfe, particularly mm -hmm. nasty colonialist from 1770. How important do you think colonial art is, both in terms of understanding the West and in perhaps um, empowering uh, the world that was silenced by colonialism? Oh, it's hugely important. Um, you know, I think uh, throughout the book, I've tried to put in as much of that art that really wasn't that well known. So um, art that William Hodges art of India, 
um, or even the Benin bronzes, which of course weren't made by European artists, were phenomenal works made in Benin, which is now in modern day Nigeria in the 15th, 16th century. But the British stole, looted in um, 1897 when they um, effectively destroyed the city and the Oba's palace and stole all these fantastic narrative panels of art which now hang in western museums but of course restitution is a is a big issue and there's a there's a um a, a groundswell to get these works repatriated um so I, it's really important it's an area that's post-colonial art has been written about for 20 or 30 years maybe even longer but it doesn't again doesn't necessarily feature so much in these um general histories because if you think back to the date of uh, Gombrich or, or Janssen, his his giant history of art was published in 1962. Gombrich's, of course, 1950. They, they, there wasn't the recognition that we'd done wrong at that well, point. Well, but Gombrich was a, I mean, Gombrich was a critic of Western colonialism, to be fair to him. Uh, I mean, he was certainly politically on the left. What about um, the role of uh, the classical tradition. Here we have another image from the book, Theodore uh, Jericho's Raft of the Medusa from 1819. Um, this image of tradition of medieval or even the classical world, how important is that? And do we need to understand classical art, medieval art, if we're to understand art? Or is it just, a, again, a, a little bit of a sort of a male fetish, a white male fetish this ah. with, 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 with the great art of Michelangelo or Giotto, who you also cover in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think Jericho is a really good example because he's using um, classical knowledge of the body. You can see those bodies at the front um are you know he's he he actually got dead bodies into his studio to paint this so the smell must have been horrific um and some of his artist friends uh, like Delacroix posed for the 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 man kind of throwing himself into the sea at the front but actually this was quite a radical painting at the time it's seven meters wide by five meters tall it's quite hard to to understand that when you look at a slide but I hope you've all seen it in the Louvre in Paris um it's a phenomenal work, but it was based on a, an horrific tale of a French frigate, the Medusa, was shipwrecked off the coast of Senegal, I believe. And um, the, cap the captain and the officers took the lifeboats and they made a makeshift raft for everybody else, the passengers, the crew, and cast them adrift, 150 people on this raft. They were adrift for nearly two weeks and only 15 survived. And if you look at the painting, you see this sort of a pyramid of bodies trying to attract the attention of a tiny, tiny ship in the distance, which we can't see on the slide. Mm. But um, And at the top of that pyramid is a black sailor who's waving a kind of makeshift flag. Their sail, sadly, is taken in the wrong direction, so they, they can't make it to that ship. Um, and so it's a, it's a very romantic painting in a way because it's, it completely engages with our emotions. And, uh, you know, is, is like a soccer punch into, you know, into your kind of into your heart when you think of these shipwrecked um, people on this on this raft just dying of thirst and hunger. And uh, yes, yeah, a, a hugely powerful painting. But, the, you know, the, the tradition of the way it's painted, of course, takes us back to the Renaissance and that ability to conjure bodies that are realistic. Let's end with. Uh, a female artist representing a, a female figure, Mary Cassatt's 
woman in black at the opera from 1880. Most people associate impressionist and post-impressionist French art with male artists. But here we have a, a female artist, one of the great works of 19th century uh, art. W why did you include this book, uh, this, this work? And why is it perhaps not just significant in the history of art, but significant for your little history of art? Yeah, she's an American to boot too. Um, she wanted to, she first um, exhibited at the at the salon, which was the official place to exhibit your work. But then uh, Degas persuaded her to join the Impressionists and she loved it because she felt free. And she was able to show subjects that she couldn't have perhaps painted elsewhere. So in that particular painting, she's painting a widow at the opera, which is why the woman can be on her own. But I absolutely love the way this woman has got her fan grasped in her left hand. But those binoculars, look how her wrist is straining to hold them in place. Like she's really looking quite aggressively. And I don't think she's looking at the stage because they're not lowered. So she's looking at someone else in a box. If you look behind her, there's actually, it's hard to see because it's painted in quite a loose way. There's a man looking at her, which was the more traditional way for women to be the object in the box and the men would look at them. We have to think of Renoir's La Loge was painted like that. But here she kind of claims the gaze for women mm. and this woman is actively looking herself and she's in focus. The man behind is not in focus. Uh, mm. And so I think, you know, it's quite interesting. She was um, she was definitely, uh, you know, experimenting and, and showing the Impressionists allowed her to do that. Yeah, so that painting uh, could be contrasted with Vermeer's Woman in Blue, uh, uh, Mary Cassatt, reclaiming the gaze for women, uh, looking through those binoculars very sharply. And perhaps uh, uh, Charlotte Mullins is the equivalent in the history of art uh, amongst art historians of that woman um, in black. I'm not saying you're a... Uh, uh, not a widow, but... <laughs> yeah, you're not a widow, but uh, you are looking um, with your uh, with your own particular insight into the history of art. Congratulations on on the, on the new book, uh, Charlotte. A little history of art. It's, it says it's a little history, but it's anything but little, even if it's short and very accessible. Congratulations on the book. Uh, what else, uh, Charlotte? Uh, have you been reading recently, art books or otherwise? To help you get to sleep at night <laughs> I'm not sure to help me get to sleep because it was a, a really good read but I have absolutely loved Mary Gabriel's Ninth Street Women so um, it's quite a tome uh, but it's on the uh, the female side to abstract expressionism so Lee Krasner Helen Frankenthaler Elaine de Kooning and placing them back in history uh, alongside Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and Willem de Kooning, not making a big deal out of it, just showing how their lives intertwined and where they all showed. So I've absolutely loved that. Um, but the book on my desk at the moment that I love is about mushrooms. Mm. I hope you can see that. <laughs> so his name is almost like a mushroom, um, I think, uh, Melvin Sheldrake, and it's called Entangled Life. And it's about the networks that fungi and um, lichen have under the surface and I read it I started reading it an artist recommended it because um, like trees that they speak underground to each other in a way that I can't really comprehend but I love the idea of artist networks and kind of ideas coming over the ether or you know through prints or across 
great distances around the world, the artists have this sort of network beyond gender and beyond uh, ethnicity. They just like it, look at each other's work, understand each other's work. So the mushrooms are kind of the uh, the biological equivalent, I think. So I'm really enjoying.